You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, a local body of believers in Quarryville, PA. To learn more about Oak Hill, visit oakhillfellowship.com. Now grab a Bible and a notebook and prepare to be spiritually enriched by God's Word. You can open your Bibles to uh, Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, we are continuing our sermon series through the book of Mark. If you do not have a Bible, uh, we would invite you to grab one in the seat back in front of you. Uh, We really want you to have God's Word in your hands as we go through this, especially today uh, when we're going through such a long section of Scripture. so if, that, if you don't have a Bible at home, you can make that Bible yours permanently. It is our gift to you. Put your name in it. Read it often. I'm already losing my voice. That's something. We had two guitar players on vacation, plus our worship director on vacation. So this is what happens, you know. You're opening your Bibles to Mark chapter... 13, and as you're turning there, I want you to imagine that you have invited someone over to your home who at one time was your really, really good friend. And it's not like anything happened between you and them. Life just brings you apart. And so you haven't seen them in 20 years. Or if you're younger than 25, just a really long time. I mean, whatever you want to do. But but you've kept up over the phone. You've kept up over FaceTime. But this is the first time you're going to be seeing them in person in a long time. And in your conversations leading up to having this friend over, um, this friend isn't exactly sure when they will get there. There, There's some things about their travel plans that have made it difficult uh, for them to give you an exact time. And so they just kind of have, you have a general window in which they will arrive. And and so here's what I want you to think about. Uh, What kinds of preparations are you making in that moment? What's going on in your heart and in your mind as you're getting ready for your friend to arrive? Well, you're probably thinking over some of the good memories that you've had together, right? You're reminiscing a little bit. You're thinking about what you used to talk about and and what was important the last time that you talked to them on the phone. You're considering what they've been up to since the last time you saw them. You're probably spending time cleaning up the house and, and making things comfortable for them. You, maybe you're preparing food or, or deciding what, where you want to take them out to eat or what activities you want to do together. The point is, you're going to be ready and filled with anticipation. You, you aren't going to be focused on what you can't know about their arrival time and when they were going to get there, you're just going to, you know that they couldn't tell you. You're just going to be caring about what you do know about the fact that they will be coming. And, and I, I think it's probably obvious to you right now, uh, that's the purpose of Mark 13. That's why Mark 13 is in your Bibles. Jesus is preparing his disciples for the time when he will be away the time during and after his ascension, I'm sorry, during, after his ascension and, and during the church age and during the tribulation and preceding his second coming. The good news of the second coming is part of the gospel message that we proclaim. Jesus is coming again and he's going to put everything right and, and, and we must be ready 
And it will become clear to us in our study today that he is less concerned about when he is coming again and much more concerned about how we are prepared and why. That's what drives Mark 13. Not an obsession with when, but how are we prepared and why. And so here's our big idea for today. Uh, Pay attention. Pay attention. Jesus is coming back again soon. Pay attention. Jesus is coming back again soon. Your Bibles are open to Mark 13. Uh, This is known as the Olivet Discourse. Uh, Discourse is another word for speaking, speech. In this case, it's teaching. Olivet refers to the Mount of Olives where it takes place. Therefore, Olivet Discourse. Took a genius theologian to come up with that one. This is by far the longest section of the teaching of Jesus recorded in the book of Mark. And it happens after his public teaching ministry in the temple. This is a specific teaching alone with his disciples. And because of what it says in verse 37, we know that it is also a teaching for all who would read these words in the Gospels afterward. In verse 37, Jesus says, What I say to you, I say to all. What I say to you, I say to all. And so this is a teaching for every believer. Since it was passed on from those first disciples, it is for us today. Isn't it so good to know that this word that is living and active is for us today? And it's not given so that we would be able to predict the future. It's not given so that we would spend all of our time writing charts and books about how modern events are the fulfillment of of this or that thing in in, in what Jesus said. It's not given so that we would feel good that we were going deep into the Scriptures when we debate eschatology with each other. All the while ignoring the primary mission that Jesus gives us in these verses. Jesus is teaching so that we would be about the right things right now. That we would be prepared for his appearing. The purpose of eschatology in the scriptures, eschatology is the study of the end times. It's not so that we would be obsessed with how all things will end, but so that we would live differently in the present. So important that you get that. Eschatology is not so that we would be obsessed with how all things will end, but so that we would live differently in the present. And and so this is why I'm choosing to preach this whole chapter in one sermon rather than five or ten sermons like many other pastors that I've listened to. And and by the way, they're completely fine and right to do that. That's their church. that They they need to discern how that's done, right? But my goal today here is not to make sure that I explain every other passage on the end times from Ezekiel, Daniel, Revelation, Isaiah. My goal today is not to give you every possible explanation of what the text could mean and then give you finally my definitive answer to end all answers. My goal today is to simply make much of what is clear in this text. To emphasize what Jesus emphasizes, namely how and why he wants us to pay attention to his second coming. This was one sermon 
from Jesus, and I believe that we will be served best today by keeping it as one sermon, even if that goes for a little while. We're going to make the main things clear, and we're going to allow for ambiguity where Jesus is ambiguous. And so today from this text, I I want us to look at five reasons to pay attention to the return of Christ. Five reasons to pay attention to the return of Christ. And because of the length, we're going to go through this section by section today. We're just going to look at verses 1 and 2, which really are the context of chapter 13 first. Looking down in your Bibles, Mark chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. In, in these two verses, we can see the first reason to pay attention to the return of Christ. It, it's that impressive works of human effort will not endure into eternity. Impressive works of human effort will not endure into eternity. Jesus has spent the last couple of days uh, teaching in the temple. And at the beginning of the week, he entered Jerusalem, and he, he went into the temple first thing. And he was observing there how the religious establishment had turned it into some money-making scheme. The next day, he went into the temple, and he wrecked shop in the temple. He overturned the tables. He wouldn't let business continue as usual. He wouldn't let people move around. The day after that, the religious leaders started confronting him and testing him where? In the temple. In the temple. Who do you think you are? Was the nature of their tests. And Jesus answered them skillfully. He he put them right in their place. And then when they had nothing more to say, Jesus went on the offensive in the temple with words of condemnation for the scribes, the law experts, and, and then with words of commendation for the weak and vulnerable who came with their sacrificial worship. In other words, the entire context of this teaching in Mark 13 is judgment on the temple system. And so they're walking out of the temple after all this went down, and like a bunch of tourists... The disciples are admiring the impressive stonework in the Temple Mount. Now, I I can't blame them, right? Like, I can relate to this. I I like to go to cities, and I like to see architecture. I can can appreciate good craftsmanship. I I enjoy taking in the beauty of a cathedral or an old church building. Maybe, Maybe you like to look at things. I remember traveling with Dwight one time, and he just loved all the concrete and the way that they did all the concrete, right? Like, maybe, maybe you could appreciate this kind of thing, right? And these guys are enjoying the construction quality of their house of worship. So I don't don't get down on them too bad. But Jesus wants to get their vision higher. He doesn't want them sharing in the value system of the scribes who would only conceive of earthly beauty in an earthly kingdom. He doesn't want them thinking about the external religious trappings that, that serve to decorate this corrupt system. Instead, he wants them thinking about the king who sits on the throne of heaven who will outlast all of it. In other words, he doesn't want them thinking like tourists who are just here to take in the view. 
He wants them to think like soldiers or ambassadors who are in a foreign land on a mission and sent on behalf of a greater kingdom. That, that's how they're going to need to think in about eight weeks from now when the, the Spirit comes down on Pentecost and the church is born. We're, we're not tourists here, church. We are ambassadors. We are soldiers. And so Jesus explains to them that there is coming a day when the temple will be torn down. That day came in A.D. 70 when Rome set fire to Jerusalem. It ravaged the temple, and the emperor Titus ordered its total destruction. What looked so strong, so sturdy now, what was so impressive, what was the centerpiece of their religious life, the, the result of zealous religious human effort, and what would even be the place where the Jerusalem church still met for the next 40 years, all of that would crumble to the ground. And that was just a foretaste of the destruction that is still to come. This theme is going to carry on through the rest of chapter 13. The stuff of earth will not remain. The stuff of earth will not remain. The impressive works of human effort, no matter how religious they are in nature, no matter how beautiful and good they appear to the naked eye, the impressive works of human effort will not endure into eternity. And that's why paying attention to the second coming of Christ is so important. We need to understand what will endure and what will pass away so that we pay attention to the right things. In eternity, nobody is going to be checking in on your bank statements to see how much money you gave to the church building fund or if your name was written on a stained glass window. Nobody. But the Lord will care how you stewarded everything he gave you for the sake of your, his kingdom. In eternity, 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 in eternity, no one is going to care what your GPA was in high school or college. No one is going to be impressed that you were an all-star athlete or esteemed by others in your field at work. Nobody. But the Lord will care how you honored him with the way that you worked hard and, the, and in your relationships of love with the people around you. And so focus on those things. If you play sports, fine. But keep the kingdom in mind. The impressive works of man-made effort will not endure into eternity. And so that's the context for the discourse that we're about to read. They have that conversation. And then they walk down the Kidron Valley, back up the other side, partway up the Mount of Olives. And remember that Jesus has been spending his nights in Bethany, probably in the house of Mary and Martha, that's on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And so on their way back to their resting place, uh, they stop and they sit down on the Mount of Olives for a little break. And so they're sitting down, looking back at Jerusalem. And from that vantage point, the, the Temple Mount is, is right there across the valley. Beautiful view. Glorious view. And so Peter, James, Andrew, and John are, are still like, this is gorgeous. Like, can you just tell us a little bit more about what you just said? Help us to understand what you're talking about back there. And so verse 3 and 4 says, And he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? 
want you to notice the emphasis in their question. Their concern is when. And how will we know when? What are the signs? And that's often our fascination when we think about the end times, isn't it? When will this happen? And what will it look like? We want to know how our here and now reality is going to get upended because we love it so much. And then if we can't figure that out, we go crazy looking. Or, or we just throw up our hands and say, well, then I guess the, the study of the end times isn't worth much. I guess I'll leave it up to the Bible nerds and Bible scholars. Listen, neither of those are Jesus' goal for you. Pay attention to how Jesus answers their questions beginning in verse 5. His concern is not going to be when and what will it look like. His concern is going to be how and why you should respond to the knowledge of his return. So look at verse 5. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Here's the second reason we must pay attention to the second coming of Christ. Uh, false saviors will attempt to lead you astray during terrifying times. False saviors will attempt to lead you astray during terrifying times. Jesus says, see that no one leads you astray. That word for see in the Greek it organizes this whole discourse. It translates a form of the Greek word blepo. It's translated in the ESV in verses 9, 23, and 33 as be on guard. It's all the same word. It means take heed, pay attention. You see why our big idea now is, is pay attention. That, that's this Greek word, blepo. And it's Jesus' primary concern without this, throughout this whole teaching You'll notice if you look down your outline at those verses that I just mentioned where Jesus uses this word, those are the first verses from each point here on out. Verses 5, 9, 23, and 33. Just trying to draw out of the text what Jesus has put in there. Jesus repeatedly says, See, be on your guard. And then he gives the reason why. Here Jesus gives the reason that, that many will try to lead people astray. He says that these people will come claiming his name. In the Bible, name is uh, the name of someone indicates their power and authority that's associated with their identity. So these people are claiming Messiah-like, God-like status. They, they may or may not use the word Christ or Jesus, but they will assume the position that only belongs to the divine Savior King. And they will use the terrifying events going on in the world to sway people to their side. There are wars and rumors of wars. There are natural disasters like earthquakes and famines and, and all this constant conflict between nations. Sound familiar? These are the moments that the media and political leaders and military leaders use to assert their power, aren't they? The way of this world is to use fear to control 
and manipulate into submission. Just turn on the news. The, the entire news cycle is used today to sway power in one direction or another. That's the way of false saviors. Just this week, a, a major leader in our country said that the nuclear threat from Russia is the highest it's been since 1962 at the height of the Cold War and the Cuban Missile Crisis. But that is despite the fact that according to multiple U.S. officials cited by media that would typically sway in that particular leader's direction, there is no intelligence supporting a higher nuclear threat from Russia than any other previous conflict. So basically, there's, his own media is saying, we don't know where he's coming up with this stuff. Now, you can do your own research and decide what you want to do from that. My goal is not to, to be interested in the politics of it or get you distracted on that this morning. Uh, it's simply a very timely illustration of how rulers of all political persuasions will use wars and rumors of wars to coax people into submission. This is just the most recent example. And we must, we must pay attention. It happens. It happens right under our noses. And through Jesus' words here, we can, we can know that while all these things must take place, they do not represent the end of the world. Jesus says, they are not the end. He likens them to birth pains. Now, I don't claim to know anything about birth pains, but, but women, how do, how do labor pains work? That they're sharp, they're painful, but they have some space in between at the beginning, right? And then as you get closer to the time of birth, the, the delivery of this beautiful new life into the world, things get much more intense, much more frequent. And Jesus is saying that's how history is going to unfold. The wars and divisions and natural disasters seem to flare up really strong in certain seasons, and those seasons get more and more intense and more and more frequent. We've been in one of those seasons, some would argue, since 2001. Right, where, where it's just been one thing after another since 2001. But I understand these things must happen, but the end is not yet. The world does not end with a natural disaster that is outside of God's control. The world does not end with an alien invasion or a zombie apocalypse or a nuclear catastrophe. The world as we know it will end with the second coming of Jesus Christ. The world, the end of the world will come when Jesus wants it to come. Not a moment before, not a moment after. And we are very near the end. The birth pains are close together. But the end is not yet. And so we do not need to be terrified at the signs of the times as they are sometimes called. The, the purpose of studying the end of all things is not to instill fear beloved. It's to call us to faith in the only one who can truly save us, in the one who is coming again. It's to assure us that his plan is unfolding just as he said it would, and we are secure in him alone. And if we're terrified, we will run to false saviors and false sources of security. 
We'll seek our salvation in a political party or a political leader. We'll become obsessed with wars and rumors of wars. We'll, we'll try to save ourselves through, through justification by just about anything. I, I think of environmentalism as one of the main things. But there's only one Savior who's going to bring an end to it all. We must pay attention to Him and the realities of His return so that we can identify the false saviors that will pull us away, try to pull us away before He comes. Paying attention to His coming will keep us from false saviors during terrifying times. Not only that, but it will also motivate us to tell others about the true Savior. Look at verse 9. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Here's the third reason we must pay attention to the second coming of Christ. The gospel mission of the present age will require faith-filled perseverance. The gospel mission of the present age will require faith-filled perseverance. Did you see it there in verse 9? But be on your guard. See, take heed, pay attention. That's our word. Why? For they will deliver you up. Who is they? It's those who don't believe. It's anyone who is antagonistic to the message of Christ. You will be misunderstood by society in general, and your allegiance to the kingdom of Christ will not result in political success, as has been thought of over the last 40 years or so, but it will rather result in political scrutiny and trial. For the early disciples in the early church, they would be beaten in synagogues and stand before governors and kings. Just, just read the book of Acts. It's all fulfilled right there. But the end cannot, it will not come until the gospel is first proclaimed to all nations. Uh, apparently that still hasn't happened because Jesus still has not returned, right? Now that does not mean that, as some have thought, we are controlling the timing of Christ's return with our commitment to missions. That was a big emphasis in the early part of the last century, and it still is sometimes common language. Like, finish the task of taking the gospel to the unreached peoples of the earth, and as soon as we reach the last one, Jesus can then return. Like he's saying to us, oh, thank you, finally you did it. No, it's clear that there is a time fixed for Christ's return. He is the sovereign, and our efforts or lack of effort do not control his timing. But it is also clear that his priority for his people in the present age is the proclamation of the gospel to all nations. Uh, maybe you've heard me say this before. Now is the time to tell others the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Have you heard that anywhere, church? 
This is another evidence that this is part of Mark's purpose for writing this gospel. This present age, this this age where there are wars and disasters and where gospel witness will receive opposition, this is the time for the gospel to go forward. That's our whole focus for this present age, church. That's it. That's what Jesus wants us to be about right now. And paying attention to the second coming of Christ will keep us focused on the current gospel mission. And that current mission will require faith-filled perseverance. Jesus does not tell his disciples about their impending trial in the public courts so that they would spend all their time <laughs> getting anxious about it and, and trying to make sure that they, they have all the right things to say and they know all the right words and before they go out and witness and, and maybe, you know, maybe I'll just avoid it and maybe I won't go out and witness. No, he tells them so that they would know what to expect, that they would not rely on themselves but on the Holy Spirit in that moment. The Holy Spirit will give them the words they need, just as he does for us today. That's not just a promise for them, but it's a promise for us too. And I know that because he doesn't just say that they're going to be tried in the courts of law and in the synagogues, but he also talks about their personal relationships. Brothers will deliver brothers over to death. Fathers will kill their own children. You will be hated by all. And if you don't see that happening much around here, uh, realize that it is happening in the lives of those all throughout the Middle East and in Asia and in other parts of the world. The, The death penalty is the result in many countries, of conversion from Islam. In some parts of India and Nepal, it's, it's the result of conversion from Hinduism. But perhaps the reason we don't see more persecution of any kind here in our own lives is because we aren't all that about the mission. We're too afraid of the pressure of being tried in the courts of public opinion. We're too afraid of losing the relationship or losing our job or losing our image because we might sound dumb. We're too afraid of any of that to actually open our mouths and speak up about Jesus. But what if I, what if I, what if I, what if I, it will happen. Count on it and then do it. The persecution is our opportunity to bear witness. The Spirit will give us the words we need. And the one who endures to the end through all of that will be saved. I said it earlier, we are not tourists in this world. We are soldiers, or if you prefer, ambassadors for King Jesus and his kingdom that is now at hand. We have a mission. It requires faith-filled, spirit-dependent perseverance through opposition. And so let's not get sidetracked by avoiding the opposition or gratifying our flesh 
Let, let's not do the, the more comfortable thing, which is to nestle into the four walls of our church or the four walls of our home and fool ourselves into thinking that the Christian life is all about obtaining more and more intellectual knowledge or busying ourselves with religious activity or anything of the sorts. Pay attention. Christ is returning. People need to know. That's where Jesus turns his attention in verse 14. The people who need to know. Continue reading with me. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing there he ought, where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea face, uh, flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house or take, to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in the winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, says to you look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Now these are some of the most debated verses in the book of Mark. And I want to consider them here under point three still. The mission of the present age requires faith-filled perseverance. I'm keeping this, them with this point for two reasons. One, the grammar of the text keeps them together. We don't have that word blepo, be on guard, before verse 14. We just have this little conjunction, but, which is all, out, all throughout this passage. And so the author's intent is that we would hold this with the previous verses. Second, these verses are part of the reason why we must be so vigilant about the mission. There's a lot of debate about what event these verses refer to. Uh, Jesus uses the language of the abomination of desolation. The most appalling thing that could happen that would bring God's judgment and be a sign of God's judgment. It's language borrowed from, from Daniel 11, where Daniel prophesied about a, a horrendous, sacrilegious event that would happen in the temple. And by the time of Jesus, the abomination that Daniel prophesied had already taken place. In 168 BC, the Seleucid ruler Antiochus IV Epiphanes entered the temple and put up an image of himself. And you can listen to our, our Daniel sermon series on our, on our website if you want to understand that more. But, but Jesus is using that same language from Daniel here in Mark to now refer to a, an event that is future to him. And so the debate over this section is then about whether it refers only to the destruction of Jerusalem that we've already mentioned that happens in the, in the years leading up to 70 A.D., or if it revert, refers to something more. So let me just tell you about that first event. According to William Lane, citing the ancient history book called The Antiquities, uh, during the years before the fall of Jerusalem, Jewish zealots went into the temple. They let criminals roam around the temple grounds. They even committed 
murder within the temple itself. Those criminals went into the Holy of Holies. They also installed a phony high priest to offer sacrifices, which means that every sacrifice he made was an abomination. And all of this preceded the Roman conquest of Jerusalem. And so there's this, this past event to Jesus in Antiochus Fourth Epiphanies. There's a near fulfillment in the lifespan of the generation of the disciples. But then the, the book of Revelation also talks about a, a future temple and a future abomination of desolation using very similar language. And so here I would suggest that we're talking about two events in Mark 13. The first one, and the second one that is going to come during the, the great tribulation before the second of coming of Christ. And, and so it's sort of like this, this telescope, right? This is my kid's telescope, right? And when the telescope is closed, it, it, it looks pretty short. It looks, it looks like it's not going to go on very long, right? It's stubby. But then there are these hidden layers that are revealed as the telescope extends and this is the way history unfolds. It's, it's not cyclical. It's, it's not what goes around comes around like karma or something like that. But it does have a repeating pattern to it. And it's moving in a straight line toward the ultimate fulfillment. And that's why Jesus can say that there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. Uh, that's a pretty big statement. Like, like, what about Noah's flood? Anybody remember that? I mean, the, the, the first destruction of Jerusalem was bad, but it wasn't global flood bad. And I would suggest that this extreme language demonstrates that there must be a future end-time fulfillment in mind here. And that future fulfillment during the Great Tribulation will result in people needing this word. I believe that's why Mark includes the little parentheses, let the reader understand. There will be some reading this in a future generation who will hear the gospel, who will pick up this book, and who need to know how to respond to the final abomination of desolation, just like the disciples in the early church needed to understand it in A.D. 70. Now we teach here that the church of the present age will be raptured off the scene by this time in the air with Jesus before the Great Tribulation. But it is, it is clear even in Revelation that there will be many who come to know Jesus during the Great Tribulation. Jesus says that they are part of the elect, those whom he has chosen to be his. And the witness of the Gospels and of the whole Bible, including the book of Mark, will be critical to their following him, just like it's critical to us now. They are especially the readers who must understand. And this is an interesting thing to just ponder. It is possible, because we believe that Jesus is coming soon and he could rapture his church at any time, that you could share the gospel with someone today and they don't believe immediately, but they come to faith after we're already off the scene. And they'll be like, oh man, I should have listened. And they'll put their faith in Christ. And they will have the same mission that we have today and they will need all the more to endure with faith-filled perseverance. 
Now, here's the bottom line. No matter what you believe about the timing of all these things or the interpretation of these verses, it is clear that Jesus wants his people to rely on the Holy Spirit and persevere in the present age. Amen? And as they do, he wants them to bear witness to who he is and what he's done. That's the bottom line. That's what Jesus wants you to get out of the Olivet Discourse. Make the best use of the time because the days are evil. That's what Paul said, right? And people will persecute you. False Christ will lead you astray. But Jesus will keep and preserve all those who are his by the power of the Holy Spirit in the, even the most trying of times. That's why we must pay attention People are dying and going to hell. They need to hear about Jesus. There is an urgency to all of this that's emphasized even more in the next section. Look at verse 23. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Five reasons to pay attention to the return of Christ. One, impressive works of human effort will not endure into eternity. Two, false saviors will attempt to lead you astray during terrifying times. Three, the mission of the present age will require faith-filled perseverance. And all of this is so urgent because, four, time will run out and Jesus will have a people for himself. The previous section ended by saying that false Christs and false prophets will try to lead astray the elect. But Jesus adds these words, if possible. And I sort of hear him in this like snarky tone, if possible, as if. Like let them just try to get my elect whom I have chosen from the foundation of the world. John records how Jesus said, no one, no one can snatch them out of my hand. But that doesn't mean that we don't need to be on guard. It doesn't mean that we just sit back and and we put our life on autopilot because, because Jesus got this. Jesus will keep all those who are his. He will not lose a single one. And the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end will be saved. The Bible talks a lot about our perseverance as saints to the end. Perseverance in faith is part of the way we know that we are his in the first place. The primary question is not, did you believe at some point in the past? The primary question is, are you believing now? Are you believing today? And rest assured, 
Jesus will preserve all those who are his. And your preservation in the faith is proof of that truth. The fact that you are still believing today is a miracle if it is true. Our perseverance is dependent on his preservation. And our perseverance is also proof of his preservation in our lives. And we don't have limitless time here to turn to him in faith. Jesus told his disciples and us all things. He gave us all things that we need to know beforehand. We have enough here, even just in Mark 13, to know that Jesus is the only Savior and Lord who's coming again for his people, and we must turn to him for salvation. We don't have to have all the I's dotted and T's crossed of our eschatology to know that. And that's why it is urgent that we respond to him in repentance and faith. These verses are, are thick with urgency. Earlier, Jesus says that there will be birth pains. Uh, we're, we're feeling them in our world even today. But ultimately, there has to come a time when the baby's born. And there ain't no going back after that, right, moms? And so, so Jesus describes here the time of the end as an undoing of the created order. This is the ultimate fulfillment of what the prophets called the day of the Lord. Those living on earth at that time will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. That, that's the language of David, Daniel 7, if you want to go back and look that up later. Daniel 7. The sun won't rise in the morning. The moon won't be there for the night. The stars won't be there to guide you where to go. By the way, you can look up Isaiah 13.10 and Isaiah 34.4 if you want to know more about that. Isaiah 13.10, Isaiah 34.4. There will be nothing else that you will be able to turn to. Only Jesus. And those who have not turned to him before that time will have no more chance. Time will have run out. And those who have turned to him will be gathered to him as his people. And the, the word, these words of Jesus will be proven true in the end. Because in that moment, he will send out to the ends of the earth. Jesus calls them the four winds. And to the ends of heaven. Those who are already with him in the clouds. And they will gather his elect and bring him to their Lord. Remember from verse 10, the, the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. That, that's, that, that's the mandate, that's the mission of the present age. And after that happens, those whom Christ has chosen, those who have put their faith in him, will be gathered to his side from all nations, from the four winds, from the ends of the earth. And he will have a people for his own possession. And this is consistent with the aim of Jesus throughout the whole New Testament, that Jesus would have a blood-bought, ransomed people for himself from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. The people who would gather around his throne and worship him forever, singing, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And those elect are identified 
now in the present age and in the time of the great tribulation. They are those who put their faith in him before his second coming. They are those who turn from their sin and their self and who trust in Jesus as the only Savior and Lord. They believe that apart from Jesus, they are dead in their sin. They believe that Jesus lived the perfect life that they could not live, that he died the death they deserved to die in their place for their sin, that he rose again and conquered the enemy that they could not conquer, Satan's sin and death. And they believe that he is right now sitting at the right hand of God the Father waiting to return to judge the living and the dead. And listen, if you have never put your faith in Jesus in that way, and if you aren't living by faith in Jesus today in that way, you need to do that. And then once you've done that, you need to persevere in that faith because the end is coming soon. Time will run out and Jesus will have a people for himself. Will you get to be a part of it? He says, take a lesson from the fig tree. Take a lesson from the fig tree. They were sitting on the Mount of Olives. There would have been many fig trees around them. Two crops were were growing there in abundance, olives and figs. And Jesus notes that there are certain physical, visible changes that occur in a fig tree that indicate summer is near. Jesus has been describing all of these physical, visible signs that indicate the, the nearness of the second coming. Not the end itself, but the nearness of it. And those signs should cause us to pay attention. Friends, it is nearer today than it has ever been. And that means there is urgency in our response. Jesus says this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, I don't really have time to go into all that. But it is obvious that he's not saying that he will return before the current generation dies out, right? We can all agree on that unless you believe that Jesus is a liar. And if you want to believe that, you're going to believe that. But there are plenty of other plausible explanations that don't require us to call Jesus a liar. I would suggest that the most likely explanation is twofold, uh, that these things refers to all the wars and natural disasters as well as the abomination of desolation. And and just like that abomination of desolation passage is telescoped, it has a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. So this statement, too, is telescoped. The, The current generation will not pass away. The disciples' generation will not pass away until the total destruction of Jerusalem which was true, it was less than 40 years until that time, and that's how they measured a generation. I believe also that it refers to the generation who sees the events of the, of, of the tribulation, the chaos leading up to the tribulation, the great tribulation itself, the abomination of de- desolation. That generation will not pass away until the second coming of Christ. And you can disagree with me on that, that's fine. But you cannot disagree that these words of Jesus are here in Holy Scripture for us to take seriously the urgency of his return and therefore the urgency of the mission of his people and the necessity for us to pay attention. Time will run out. Heaven and earth will pass away. We don't know when. No one will know the day or the hour. Not even the Son, at the time that these words were given, knows the day or the hour. But he told us all things beforehand, and his words will not pass away. Mark his words. Jesus is coming again soon. 
And so we pay attention. We pay attention. Let's finish by reading verses 31 to 37. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. I'm sorry, verse 33. Be on guard. There's our word. Be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man who's going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper of the house to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Maybe that's necessary even right now as it's hot in here, right? But here's the last reason we must pay attention to the Lord according to the Olivet Discourse. Jesus will return at any time, and he wants to find us ready. He wants to find us ready. Jesus says it one final time, be on guard, blepo, pay attention. Why? So that you can stay awake. You don't know when he's coming. It's like that friend from the illustration at the beginning. They, they, their flight might come in a lot later than you think. They might run into traffic along the way, or, or they might get great traffic from the airport and, and be there a half an hour earlier than you thought. Either way, you're not going to crawl under your covers and go to sleep if they still haven't arrived at your house. The only difference is that the Father does have the time and the hour fixed for the return of Christ. And, and the reason he doesn't tell us here, I'm convinced, is that we would be tempted to fall asleep on the job. Well, let me just take a little spiritual catnap. And then we would try to wake our, ourselves up right before we knew he would show up. It's just the way we are, isn't it? But instead, the Lord leaves us in the dark about the when. And he only gives us minimal details about the signs of the things happening so that, so that we would stay awake the whole time he's gone. Our Lord went on a journey. We are his servants and he, he gave us a job. And he wants, us to find, he wants to find us doing that job and having completed that job when he returns. He does, not want us to find, he does not want to find us spiritually asleep, lulled into complacency, and dreaming of earthly things just because his coming took longer than we thought it should. And what he said to these disciples, he says to all of us sitting here today, stay awake. Servants of Jesus, there is still more work to be done until our master's return. There are still more people who, who need to hear about Jesus. There is still more sin to root out of our hearts that, that we would be a spotless bride for when our group, groom returns. There is still more sweeping up and cleaning out the household of God do not be like the disciples who, in just one day's time, went to the garden with Jesus, and he said, stay awake with me. Watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. And they couldn't even stay awake for one hour. Stay awake by putting your hand to the work 
as a servant of Jesus Christ. If you're working, you're, you're going to stay awake. If you're sitting back, you're not going to stay awake. You'd be spiritually complacent. And so stay awake by, by refusing to be distracted by impressive works of human effort. Stay awake by refusing to, to trust false saviors in terrifying times. Stay awake by getting busy on the mission of Jesus to take the gospel to all nations. Stay awake by, by recognizing the imminence of Christ's return and the urgency that time is running out. Stay awake. Be, be a servant who is found ready when our master returns. We must pay attention. The, the second coming of Jesus informs everything about how we live our lives today, doesn't it? You see that now? Like what in your life this week would be different if you were totally focused on the fact that Jesus is coming back soon? What would be different if you thought that he was coming back on Friday? How would you prepare for him? How would you spend your time? How would you reorder your routine? How would you spend your money? How would you, what would you, who would you tell before it's too late? Understand, this, that might not be a hypothetical situation. It could totally happen. It could totally happen before Friday. And so let's pray together that we would pay attention. Pray with me. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.